0: Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form if you will. This episode is Your Resurrection Day Clothes. The name Chuck or Charles Colson was always flying around somewhere when I was growing up. Either he had recently published a book, or he had a five-minute ministry moment on the local Christian radio station, or, as I got older, I would hear from ex-cons who had been affected by his ministry, Prison Fellowship. I heard some of those guys joke about him doing hard time, only being in jail a few months as opposed to the years that they had been. But however short or long his stint in the prison system was, it changed his life forever. Chuck had graduated from George Washington University, become an attorney, and found himself in the political game quite quickly after college. He wasn't the guy delivering speeches, shaking hands, and kissing babies for votes. He was the architect behind the scenes who did all the dirty work to get his man elected. And in the early 70s, that was President Richard Nixon. Nixon would reflect in his memoir that Chuck had, quote, an instinct for the political jugular and his ability to get things done made him a lightning rod for my own frustrations. End quote. In nineteen seventy, Nixon would make him his political point man for what he called quote imaginative, dirty tricks. End quote. He would go on to say When I complained to Colson, I felt confident that something would be done, and I was rarely disappointed. Those quotes can be found in a New York Times article I'll have in the show notes for you. The pinnacle of Colson's political work was the Watergate escapade. After the downfall of the Nixon presidency and the Watergate cover-up attempt, Colson would later confess to a federal judge that he had been, quote, an arrogant, self-assured man in the ruthless exercise of power. That comes from the Washington Post, and again, that'll be in the show notes as well. The Arrogance the pride. This isn't the idea that someone's above the law. It's a bit more convoluted than that. It's the arrogant idea that the law is definitely in place, but you can manipulate the law, usurp its rules, and avoid the consequences. It's the arrogant idea that you can keep things hidden. The blind and ignorant idea that even others in the conspiracy with you will somehow look out for you when the essence of everyone's motivation is self-advancement. It's insane, really. The reality is that this response of cover-up so you can get away with it is not so different from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The serpent tempts Eve, she rationalizes the sin, justifies the sin, takes a bite, and then brings Adam in on the deal. And if I may digress shortly, I recently found a study Bible called the SRNSB. And they lay out the thought that if Adam and Eve had been good quality, self-respecting southern rednecks—and I do know a few—sin would never have been an issue in this world. And why, you ask? They'd have put the fruit aside, killed the snake, and barbecued that sucker instead of talking to him. You know, that would make for an interesting version of the Bible. So if you want to study the Bible with a redneck twist, the Southern Redneck Study Bible might be your next best study guide. And you can put it right next to your red letter edition as well. It'll have great stories like David, Goliath, and a wrist rocket. Jesus feeding the 5,000 with catfish and cornbread. It'll have great recipes like deep fried manna. And all those references you see in Psalms about harps and lyres, they're replaced with banjos and nose harps. And all those references to boats on the Sea of Galilee, well, they're either tracker bass boats or pontoon party barges. And lastly, to keep it fair and balanced, a quick disclaimer about this study Bible. Portions of Scripture that deal with family trees and lineage have been deleted so as not to offend some of our brethren. So get your Redneck Study Bible and add it to your collection of diverse Bible study guides. Okay, back to the script. I want to jump in at Genesis 3, 7 and 8. They've just taken a bite out of the forbidden fruit. Quote, At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking through the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. End quote. Cover it up and hide out. Wait it out. Wait for the heat to die down. And hasn't that become the human knee-jerk reaction to our sin, to our shame, to our wrongdoing? Chuck doubled down hard on the cover-up, but it didn't work. A president ends up resigning and several aides end up in jail. Adam and Eve hide in the forest, but God found them. And what were Adam and Eve thinking using fig leaves? They're going to dry out and crack and break. Not exactly the greatest thing for flexibility. And interestingly enough, the King James Version doesn't use the word cover like many other versions do. The King James uses the term apron. Think about that for a minute. The guy is ashamed for his nakedness, and he puts on an apron. I'm pretty sure that if you put on an apron and go for a walk, you're going to have a conversation with local law enforcement regarding a statute that uses the terms indecent exposure in it. Ultimately, the point being that Adam and Eve had a sense of shame. They took action to cover it, but it was insufficient, grossly insufficient. So the next thing they do is they resort to hiding when God calls him out in verse 10, Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I hid because I was naked. End quote. If Adam's covering, his fig leaf, was sufficient, then why did he have to hide and still make the comment to God that he was naked? The reality is that no effort of our own will remove or hide the shame of sin in our lives. And in this moment, Adam and Eve are learning this firsthand. You can try to cobble some leaves together. You can try to spin a story to make you look good in front of other people. You can try to hide facts. You can try to minimize details. You can try to ignore events. You can pop a pill or down a six-pack. But the fact is that sin and shame are present. And if there is any lesson to learn from Adam and Eve and Chuck... We cannot successfully cover these things on our own. And the more we try, the worse it gets. And the worst way to hide or cover your sin and shame? Find darkness. Find places without windows and minimal light. Have you ever seen a well-lit bar? The problem is that in darkness, people gloat in their sin and their shame. They don't have to face it. Nobody around them sees it. But when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he hits the nail on the head here. And in the message, Eugene Peterson adds what I would call a justifiable commentary on the issue. Jesus says, quote, This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil addicted to denial and illusion hates godlight and won't come near it. why? Because they fear painful exposure end quote and while it's an unfortunate part of our human nature to run and hide shoot I I know several times as a kid where I ran and hid from the consequences of my behavior whether it was My propensity for breaking windows with rocks or fighting with my siblings or getting into trouble at school or whatever it may be. That sense of run and hide or cover up and hide, it's ingrained in us. But I'm glad that God sought out Adam and Eve and that they submitted. They tried to blame others, but ultimately they're standing before the Lord as opposed to hiding in a cave somewhere on the north side of Eden. And what happens next? cannot be overlooked or brushed over. It's important to note here that there's a bit of a confrontation. There's a pseudo-confession, that is to say that they admit eating the fruit, but they're still in the blame-fixing stage, and God's having none of it. He doesn't play into it, and he doesn't correct them either, but rather he pronounces the consequence. Given that this episode is being dropped on Good Friday, it would be good to note that in this consequence— in this curse, the Lord levies a prophecy about Jesus in this curse against the serpent. The reference is in verse 15 about quote, hostility between you and the woman, see Revelation 12 as well, and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. End quote. And on the original Good Friday, the devil struck the heel of Jesus, nailed it to the cross. And on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus crushed the devil's head. It's truly amazing to see how far back in Scripture the prophetic references to Jesus' sacrifice begins. But what I'm most appreciative of is that God's interaction with Adam and Eve doesn't end with a conversation about consequence and judgment. Too often this is where people stop. And you can't stay here long without drifting back into shame and potentially drifting back into those dark places. It's important to have these tough conversations with God. There's a need to come together and understand what God expects. This whole interaction turns around, though, in verse 21. This is where the redemption takes place. And if you're not careful, you can blow right past the depth of this sentence. Let me read it quickly. Quote, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife." It's awkward to imagine, but throughout the consequence conversation that God has with Adam and Eve, it would appear that they were probably donning the fig leaf aprons at the time. It isn't until after the conversation, the understanding of the consequence, that the shame is addressed. Or should I say, it's dressed. This is another one of those references in Scripture that's a bit of a foreshadowing of Jesus and definitely of the sacrificial system. And you have to read between the lines a bit to do this, so here are a couple of quick observations. Observation 1. The use in this verse of the word clothing and not covering. Yes, clothes cover a person, but these are made to fit. They are tailored suits made by the Almighty to cover their specific body in a specific shape and a specific form, to cover their specific shame, their nakedness. Think of the story of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. When the son finally comes home, the father dresses him in a way that identifies him as a son, not a slave. He doesn't just cover him up and return to business as usual, he clothes him and celebrates his son. The clothing separated him from the angst of his shameful life and identified him as a son. Paul solidifies this perspective in Galatians 3.27 when he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ, into a spiritual union with Christ the Anointed, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is, you have taken on His characteristics and values. That's out of the Amplified Observation 2. I don't see there being a taking of animal skins without both the death of the animal and the shedding of that animal's blood. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that, quote, "...without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." And we'll see that on the first occasion of sin in the Bible, God steps up immediately to provide the sacrifice, atone for the sin, and remove the shame from Adam and Eve. Granted, the law will come under Moses and the sacrificial system will get pretty complex with bulls and goats and sheep and white-tailed deer and wild turkey if you're a good old southern redneck and let that let you work that into the system there. But the principle was simple, and we see it as early in Scripture as Genesis 3.21 when God sheds the blood of an animal to cover the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. The animals who provided the skins for Adam and Eve were also the first blood sacrifice on this Good Friday. Remember that Jesus was also the last sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for all time, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. Chuck Colson is probably like a lot of us. He had something to hide, something to be ashamed of. He gave it his level best to cover it up, and if anybody was academically qualified and occupationally gifted enough, It would have been somebody like him, but it wasn't enough. Behind bars, he had a fig leaf moment with Jesus, that moment when he realizes that all of his efforts are worthless and ineffectual. And this is where he found faith in Jesus Christ. Given that this is Resurrection Weekend, it's interesting to note that a hurdle that Colson had to overcome in coming to faith in Christ was the truth of the resurrection. Ultimately, the gospel hinges on the accuracy of this event. He had a hard time with it, viewing the resurrection as a conspiracy. But the more he looked at it, the more he realized that what he and his colleagues had tried to do was perpetuate a lie in the Watergate cover-up, a conspiracy. Quote, Here were the ten most powerful men, highly educated lawyers and politicians, in the United States, With all that power, we couldn't contain a lie for two weeks. Take it from one who was involved in a conspiracy, who saw the frailty of man firsthand. There is no way the eleven apostles, mostly uneducated men, rebels, and outcasts, who were with Jesus at the time of the resurrection, could ever have gone around for forty years proclaiming Jesus' resurrection unless it were true as you go about your Resurrection Day celebration activities, and even after it passes us by, please grab hold of the fact that from the first sinful moment in Genesis, God has been making every attempt to make us right with Him, to deal with our sin and shame, to clothe us in His righteousness. The cross is the culmination of His love for us. Through a sacrifice better than any animal, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with this? In this episode, I'll leave that up to you. I would encourage you that if God is pricking your conscience, respond. Come clean. Don't hide. Don't cover up. Put on Christ. Put on your Resurrection Day clothes. I'm Nate Vineo, and this has been Something to Gnaw on. Until next time, God bless. And in the event that you'd like to pre-order a copy of the Redneck Study Bible, shoot me a message.